Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So let me ask you a question. As you've pondered Thanksgiving, what came to mind that you are thankful for? And there's a part of me that would love to just stop right there and just have everybody share the whole day. But whatever comes to mind, my bet is the stuff that comes to mind in your life is the stuff that really matters most. That's the reason we're talking about that today. And the why of this message today is because of a post on Facebook that, that Wendy found that I think tells how easily we can lose that focus, right? Black Friday, because only in America can we trample people after saying thank you the day before for sales. That's kind of funny. It's kind of sad. But isn't it kind of true a little bit? With all the pressures going on around us, it's so easy to lose our focus on what matters most. Uh, The pressures financially, the pressures relationally during this holiday season is one of the times when we lose our focus the easiest. And the purpose of today's message is to simply do this, to encourage each one of us to stay focused on the things that really matter. Because when it comes down to it, what we want for our lives is we want our lives to make a difference. We want them to really matter. We want our lives to mean something for eternal, for lasting difference. This is actually our ultimate purpose as people, to worship God and to make a difference in life. This is what really makes life fulfilling. It makes life fun. And this is how we show that we are followers of Jesus. We bless others through the blessings we've been given, through our finances, through our talents, our abilities, our time. We share and we give to others. And God has entrusted us with so much, hasn't he? I mean, the question for today is how do we stay focused on what really, really matters. The Apostle Paul, who started many churches, raised up many leaders to lead those churches, helped young leaders stay focused on what really matters, oftentimes through writing letters. And we get to look into one of those letters to Timothy. First Timothy 6, Paul writes this. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Let's just pause there. We're going to read more, but we're going to unpack that. Notice under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is commanding. He's not asking. So what does that mean? It means this is really, really important stuff that he's talking about. So Paul says, know that God provides you not just with the bare essentials or to survive, but with enough to enjoy it and to be generous. And and so don't hear what we're going to talk about through this scripture or what we're going to talk about coming next as God just wanting me to give everything away and not enjoy everything because that's that's not what that's not what's being said here. But what's the focus that really matters? Paul highlights a key way we get off track and how actually to stay on track. He says, don't get focused on wealth. Always keep your primary focus on God's hope, his purpose in this world for you and for others. Keep your riches focused on what matters most. Further, this verse also speaks directly to who we are when it says rich in this present world. In a large-scale survey in 2011, Gallup asked Americans one question. It was this, how much money do you need to make a year in order to be rich? So if you were asked that question, what would your answer be? 
So I want you to raise your hand when I get to the figure that is what you think you need to make per year to be rich. Is it $50,000 a year? Anybody $75,000? I'm going to feel like an auctioneer here. $150,000. How about $150,000? Anybody $150,000? Are you rich at $150,000? What about $300,000? How about $600,000? Anybody a million? Okay. The national average answer was $150,000. Now, when you analyze the answers from the people a little further based on various income brackets, the answers varied. The median income in America is around $50,000. Those who make that or less said you need to make $100,000 a year to be rich. Those who made just the next bracket over that said you needed to make somewhere between $150,000 and $200,000 a year to be rich. The more money someone makes, the more money you need to be rich. In fact, 15% of people said that you are not rich unless you make at least a million dollars a year. So... What the survey says is, nobody in America is rich. Everybody knows somebody who's rich, though, right? According to international data, anyone in America making 40000 a year or more is in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. It's kind of ironic. Those who protest against the one percenters are all one percenters themselves. Isn't that, how do you protest yourself? Now... I know that some will look at that statistic and say, argue that it's not completely fair, and it probably isn't. The, the cost of, of buying things varies greatly in different countries. So let's be generous with that statistic. If you make 40000 per year or more, you are at least in the top 10% in annual buying power in the world. That means most of us in this room get an A for being rich, Right? question, do you feel rich? When I was in Russia a little over five years ago, in fact, I just got a text before service from Todd. We were texting back and forth, our missionary in uh, in Russia. He was driving us around Saratov, pointing out the poor and the middle and the wealthy homes. And most of the wealthy homes we drove by would sell in Columbus for around $250,000. Many of the middle-class homes would be considered the condemned Section 8 housing in Columbus with holes in the walls covered by rusted corrugated steel living in Russian sub-zero temperature winters. The really poor homes are often multi-story concrete block apartment buildings with maybe 10 by 20 rooms where you'd have four to eight people living in those rooms. And Saratov is one of the wealthier, more prosperous cities in Russia. If you ask the question to all of us here, how many of you are rich, few of us would raise our hands. That said, if I ask a little different question, how many of you feel blessed financially? I think almost all of us would raise our hands. See, I think that we recognize the blessings that we really have, and we're grateful for them, and yet we still continue to struggle with rich people complaints. We complain about things like the internet lag during the Buckeye game, which forced me to not see a touchdown yesterday. That's a rich person problem. Some of you did this today, getting up, uh, getting ready to come to church today. You walked into the room where your clothes live, so your clothes live in a room, right? And you looked at the wall of clothes and the drawers full of clothes, and you said... I have nothing to wear. See? Just saying. Rich people complaints. Hear me now. I'm not saying this to make anyone feel guilty at all. 
I mean, guilt is most often counterproductive and a self-defeating emotion. Now, this message is intended to remove our guilt and help us live guilt-free with no regrets. Here's the point I want, to, I want you to hear. God doesn't want us to feel guilty. He wants us to be gratefully responsible. So I am going to talk about money primarily today, but I'm not just talking about money. This also relates to our gifts, our talents, our time, our abilities. I'm simply trying to bring to mind in a very clear way the vast majority of us as, as Americans have more than we need. Even many of the, uh, the poor in America live better than the middle class in most other countries. We are so very blessed. We are rich. Problem is, we often don't live well as rich people. We miss living in the full joy, the peace, the contentment, the blessing that God has given us and intends for us to live in. Paul goes on with another command, using that word one more time. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And I'll be honest, I am so blessed and thankful for who you are as people of Quest because I get to see you pursuing living this out, and it is such a joy to see Many of you uh, know also at the beginning of the year, uh, each year we tend to ask a series of questions using an anonymous incident response system somewhere around early February that help us assess uh, the healthiness of our church. And for many years we asked a couple of questions around finances. And basically every year 75% or more of you would say, God wants me to be more generous. And I believe God wants me to give at least 10% of my income to God's work in this world. As a result... Because of that, we have rarely preached on money here. So if you're here and you're visiting, this is not normal. I haven't talked like this for years here. Instead, we have focused on celebrating and encouraging us to live out our generosity, desire, and the belief that we have around generosity. But see, one of the problems with that survey, consistently year after year, showing 75% or more still saying, I want, I believe God wants me to be more generous in my life, is that it also indicates that for some, that dream, that sense that God wants you to be something more in your life is not changing. Because three or five or eight years later, after you acknowledge that dream of your own to be generous, you aren't further down the road to living that dream. In fact, many of you even make a lot more money today than you did back then when you first acknowledged that dream of yours. See, now let me, let me, I know the difficulty of finances. I know Wendy and I have made some financial mistakes in our life that took 10 years to correct. I, I, I get that. I get that, but here's the problem for you and your faith if you haven't made progress to being more generous. You are left living in this guilt-ridden place of disconnect between what you believe and what you do, and that is never a fun place to live. Now, there have been many of you who've made lots of steps toward generosity. I'm really proud of you to take it for how intentional you've been and thankful for what you've done there. The reason Jesus talks more about money than almost anything is that money has this power to subvert our dream and ruin our peace and contentment and joy in life by taking our focus off of what is really important and putting it on our drivenness for more things that in the end don't really matter. Paul is 
reaching all of us and teaching all of us with this valuable lesson. He's commanding us not to be present age focused, not to be money focused, to not find our sense of pride and our sense of self-worth in how much we have and instead to focus on what really matters and live life without regrets so that when we get to the end of our life on our deathbed, we have no regrets. See, one of the primary reasons we get caught up in spending more on things and not living more generously is because we get caught up in a popular philosophy that I think can most easily be seen in a hashtag. Now, let me admit, I'm, I am anything but hip and, and current in regard to culture. My kids just say, Dad, don't even try. But I'm going to forego their wisdom this morning and quote a popular hashtag from Drake, who I'm told is a popular rap hip-hop artist. He popularized the hashtag YOLO. Who knows what that stands for? Yell it out. You only live once. Yeah. This, you guys know that and I didn't know that. The mantra feels so much extravagant bucket list activity in our lives, doesn't it? It, it motivates us to live for and do whatever it takes to have and experience the best thrills, the best things, the best pleasure this world has to offer. The problem is YOLO is short-sighted and it actually undermines what really matters most in our lives. Paul goes on to tell us what matters more and why we should be generous and, and give. He says, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, instead of YOLO, I think we need a new hashtag, YOLT. You only live twice. Needs to be our mantra. See, when we lose perspective on YOLT and we live according to YOLO, we lose out on what really matters. If we were to have someone come to you, for instance, and say, I'd just been given a million dollars and then they said to you, I'm going to blow it all on fun in the next 30 days, would you call that person wise? No. But see, we make the same mistake in living our life, focusing so much on this life that we ignore the long-term investment and the priorities of what really makes eternal, lasting difference in life. See, Paul is saying the thing that really matters most in this life is what we can uniquely do now in this life to add value, to lay up treasure for that next life, for eternal life. And that, that really comes down to mainly one thing. There's other things around this, but the, we can love people really well and we can lead them to the goodness of God and to faith in Jesus so that we get to enjoy the next life all together. See, Paul is admonishing us to prioritize how we spend our time, our talents, and our treasure, our money, to create eternal treasure. And Paul is saying in doing this, we actually take hold of life now and in the future that is truly life. It's truly living. Now, I understand when I say that, that a lot of our natural reaction, especially among some of us, is to think, well, that just means God wants us to sacrifice everything, to not enjoy anything at all, just to live as paupers and give everything away. But you see, that's actually the reason Paul has to say in this text, God has given us everything for our enjoyment. Paul is correcting that pauper self-abasing view, saying God wants this life and the next 
to be full of joy, full of enjoyment. So, but what brings the most full, enjoyable life in this life and the next? Paul is saying our enjoyment becomes greatest in this life when we live our life primarily for making eternal difference in the lives of other people. And that difference is found in living through the mantra of you only live twice. This life is not the only life. In fact, it is the smallest portion of life. So don't blow everything on this life. Live with eternal value in mind. So, leads to another question. So what instruction does God give us that can help us understand what this laying up treasure for eternity looks like? What, what, what guides does he give us? We're going to actually look at two scriptures to help find those answers. But, but first, let me tell you the story of Bill and Michael. So Bill was a guy who made his millions, and as he was approaching retirement, he turned his life to investing in younger people. And he would often take kids out of broken homes who had little opportunity to invest time and money in them. Michael was one of those kids. Bill would uh, go to Michael's events from elementary all the way through high school on a regular basis. He paid for Michael to go to Christian camps in the summer. He, he set up internships for him in high school using his network to do that for him. He, he tutored Michael in math, and, and he encouraged him in his homework, and he loved Michael. He spent a lot of time with him. Michael was one of those kids who beat the odds of his culture. He was growing up, and he graduated with a 4.0. He had a great score on an ACT. He, he got accepted to a top-tier out-of-state college that cost $75,000 a year, and in the process also earned a one-third scholarship for that. Michael was thrilled. He was proud. His single-parent mom was so proud. It was a huge celebration. They had no idea how they were going to pay for the rest of the tuition, but it was a great day when he got that information in the mail. And Bill's investment in Michael paid off. All of his time tutoring, encouraging him, giving him opportunities to be healthy and grow up well instead of getting caught in the drug and gang culture that surrounded where he lived, it all paid off. So at Michael's graduation, Bill showed up and surprised him with a check to pay for the rest of his first year's tuition, made out to the college. August came, Michael left a couple months later, Bill discovered that Michael had washed his check and taken the college's name off and put his name in the check and he'd cashed it and spent the 50 grand buying himself a car and instead of going to school was living on the beach partying. How do you think Bill felt? If you were Bill, how would you respond? Would you hold Michael accountable for not uh, misusing your generosity? I mean, I, th I, think, I think most of us absolutely would. Would you be a person who is standing there ready to give him some more money in the future? No. Now there's a tougher question. If Bill were God, do you think God is justified in responding the same way to us? And yet, God doesn't respond the same way. See, Malachi paints this picture of a conversation between God and the people of Israel, for whom God provided so patiently, extravagantly, saying... Ever since the time of your ancestors, so this is centuries of this repeated same pattern. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. The people of Israel had turned away from God like Michael had turned away from Bill. They had taken God's blessings, given to them for a purpose, and lived for stuff that didn't really matter. 
But instead of rejecting the Israelites and turning away, God said, return to me and I'll return to you. Come back. Just refocus your heart. I'm there for you. See, the conversation of Malachi goes on. It says, but you ask, how are we to return? And God replies, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And God replies, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Paul says, God has given you everything you've ever had, all that you have, your time, talent, your opportunities, your money. He's provided enough for you to enjoy, to be generous with. And God speaks to Malachi and says, God gives you everything you have, and he asks you to give a tithe. Now, a tithe means one-tenth of your income. So for every $100, you give 10. For every 10,000, you give 1,000. God is essentially saying, he is Bill and we are Michael. Now, can I ask you a question? Is this me or the Bible laying guilt on you right now? Or is this a reasonable, fair expectation? Go back to your answer of Bill and Michael earlier. Is this fair and reasonable? The first guide we have for focusing our lives on what really matters on making an eternal difference is through the habit of tithing. From God's perspective, none of us would likely have given Michael another chance, but God says, come, turn to me, come back. Let's get things right. And then he goes on and says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, meaning provision for God's mission through the church. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to contain it. God stands ready not only for all of us to return to him, but to throw open the floodgates of heaven. Think about that imagery. Think about yourselves trying to stand as the floodgates open with an outburst of blessing on you. See, this is not a promise that everyone in here will become wealthy enough to afford to live in the country club of New Albany or Westerville. That's not the point. The curse or the blessing this verse is talking about that results from where our heart lands in dealing with money actually has little to do with finances. It has everything to do with the richness of peace and joy and satisfaction in our lives. It has everything to do with your life mattering for something bigger than you, something of eternal value. When the rubber meets the road, the tithe and its blessing has everything to do with trust. Do you trust God's love? Do you trust not only his past provision, but his ability to provide for you in the future as well? Do you trust in yolt? in the second life, in the tremendous value of living this life to store up riches for the next. See, God says, test me. See if I'm not trustworthy. See if I'm not faithful. See if I won't make your 90% go further than the 100% ever can in bringing you peace and blessing and contentment and joy in life. See, the teaching of the Bible regarding tithe is not just 10%. It is also the first and best 10% not giving God what's left over at the end of the month, but giving God the first off the top. Tithing, the first and the best, is this powerful, life-freeing, life-reorienting habit that will bless your life, 
by consistently refocusing your life on what matters most, trusting God's provision and his eternal reward. I have tithed since I was a child. When I was in college making 5000 and I needed 6000 to pay for college, I gave 500 and God provided all the time. I made it through college debt-free. When I was first married making 19000 a year, we gave a minimum of 10%, sometimes more. Even when our budget forecasted a shortfall that I would have to drop out of master's work, I never did. God always provided. At Quest, we don't hire pastoral-level staff who don't tithe. We insist on leading by example. Wendy and I, for 32 years of marriage now, always give between 10 to 14% of our income to the church we're in. That means to Quest right now. For 32 years, God has never, ever let us down. We have always been blessed. Have there been times when we had to cut back on things because we didn't have enough money, not go on a vacation because we didn't have a money? Yes. I wouldn't trade the blessing of giving for any of those things. Sometimes that blessing isn't just money. It's more than money. It's relationships. It's the things that really matter. On your deathbed, what's going to matter? It's going to matter. The relationships, the way you loved well, that's what's going to matter. Those blessings come back in that way when we give. It's knowing that you're serving, that your friendship, that you're giving brought somebody to faith in Jesus. It's knowing that you're giving and you're serving and your care helped save a marriage. And now that marriage is expressing the gospel better to an entire family, making a difference in their life. Sometimes it's knowing that you're giving help. Children and youth have a safe place in this building to seek God, have fun, and know God. God and become faithful followers of Jesus. Sometimes it's knowing that you're giving help a, a missionary like Todd in Russia share the gospel with government officials and the heads of the medical department over there and educators in his, in his area, which he's doing right now and had so many conversations in the past few months with people who will never hear the gospel without him sharing it. And then God goes on through Malachi to reaffirm to us again the why of our generosity. And he says it this way. He says, Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. Generosity is what brings delight to your life and to the world. And other nations, other people will call you blessed because your blessing has touched their lives, drawing them to an experience of the goodness of God. See, the second way the Bible teaches us to focus our generosity is through its teaching on this idea of judgment and reward. We'll, we'll explain that. Here, Hebrews 9 sets it up well. It says, the people, uh, people are destined to die once, we know that, and after that to face judgment. Now, that's kind of a scary concept. Can we just all admit that? So what does that mean? The Bible actually teaches there are two judgments. There is the first judgment that is about your salvation that is based on your relationship with Jesus. So uh, let me explain it this way. Outside of relationship with Jesus, all of us live under the law. So that, that's the way the, the theology talks about. But here's what that means for us. What that means is that you need to live life to be good enough to live up to, to a certain measure in order to be right with God, right with yourself, right with others, and right with the world. That's the way most of us live. We live under those expectations of whatever is good enough under the law. The problem is we all know we fail. We not only fail what we know God says is right and best and good, we fail what we think is good enough to be right and best and good moral people. 
We all know we sin and we fall short. See, living under the law is such impossible pressure. And God came in Jesus to take that pressure off of us. He lived, he died to take the punishment for our sin upon himself. And now the only decision we have to make in order to be right with God, to be saved, is whether we will accept that most extravagant gift of love and mercy given to us by God in Jesus or we're not accepted. And all we have to do is choose to receive the gift and choose to follow Jesus as the leader of our life and we are no longer under the law. We are loved, we are accepted, we are secure, we are blessed, we are cared for, we are protected by God. Now, if you've continued to reject Jesus and that gift of love and forgiveness and power that is so extravagant, then you have rejected God and at some point when you die, he will reject you because you disdained his gift by spending all that he had given you on yourself rather than following him who extravagantly provides for you and loves you in ways that are beyond our comprehension. See, the first judgment is all about your relationship with Jesus. Salvation is a gift that cannot be earned. It can only be received, and we make the choice to receive it and follow him. What we often skip over, though, is there's the second judgment, one that has nothing to do with salvation, nothing to do with whether you end up in heaven or hell. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation, this foundation Paul is talking about is, is Jesus, all the stuff we just talked about, who he is to us. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold and silver and costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, and now that day is referring to this second judgment we're talking about, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work, their life. If what you have, been built, if you, what you have built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through flames. So even in that last line, he's reaffirming that this judgment is completely separate from salvation, has nothing to do with that. The second judgment is all about how wonderful the reward will be for you and the way you lived this life in the next life in heaven. Now think about this for just a minute. Isn't God's love absolutely mind-blowing? He saves us. He loves us even though we don't deserve it. He gives us everything we have, everything we are. And then on top of that, he rewards us for how we use what he gave us. Isn't that mind-blowing? How generous, how loving that is? See, Paul is asking this question, will we build with gold and costly stones or with wood, hay, and straw that will be burned up and does not last. So what does that mean? What's he trying to say? Well, in Malachi, God says the tithe belongs to the church to supply God's mission through the church. So when you put that together with what Paul says in here in 1 Corinthians, what all this means is, in a practical sense, is you can give your money to cure cancer, 
But if you don't give it in the name of Jesus and the mission of Jesus is not somehow impacted or moved forward, then all you're doing is building with wood, hay, and straw, and it's all going to be burned up and means nothing. Because if you can cure someone's cancer, but they never hear about the good news of Jesus, never experience that, never run into that as a result of how you give of your life, then what good is that? You can feed the poor, but if you don't do it in the name of Jesus and there's no impact for the kingdom, then, then it will all be burned up and there will be nothing of eternal value and reward for you from that activity. You can give to children's education programs and if you don't do it in the name of Jesus, then it's all going to burn up and no eternal reward is gained. So I can already hear a question screaming in some of your minds. Am I saying we shouldn't be involved in secular charities for curing cancer or giving to other charitable causes that aren't directly related to Jesus? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is the scripture is recommending we do it purposefully, though. And the Bible talks about the tithe that belongs to the church, and it also talks about offerings. And that's the idea of giving above and beyond the 10% that you already give to God's mission through the church. If you have margin to give above and beyond the 10%, then feel free to give to other non-Christian-based causes. When you do, keep eternal value in mind. So here's what that might look like. Maybe it means giving to Pelotonia while your main intentional purpose in doing that is you're going to build friendships with the people you're training with and you're going to share your faith with them. Thereby, you take a good cause and make it an eternally valuable redemptive cause because of how you invest your time and money to build relationship that becomes redemptive. So I said a lot today. Let me just stop and just say thank you. Thank you to every one of you who give. Thank you to all of you who tithe and give 10% and some many of you give even more than 10% to make Quest what it is today. Without you, we could not do half the stuff we're doing. We would be so much less in the impact we're making in people's lives. Thank you to those of you who are taking an intentional steps to move in that direction through things like financial peace, to manage your money better, choosing to increase your giving a little bit at a time so that one day soon, hopefully your beliefs and your actions joyfully align and you can be rid of that feeling of guilt where you know you're not living what you believe. This message is about money, but it is also about so much more. It's not just our money that invests in eternity. It's the way we talk. It's the way we live our lives. It's the way we use our talents. I do find it interesting, though, that in both Paul and in Malachi, when, when the people of God are drifting away in their lives to things that really don't matter, in both instances, they start correcting that drift by talking about money. Now, I think about that and I ask the question, well, well maybe, maybe that's because money represents what we do, what we work for, what our talents earn us, and, and maybe it's because we see money as that which pays for our dreams, right? I think... That probably too, but I think most of all, how we use money represents where our heart is, what we see and what we value. Jesus says where your heart is, there your treasure will be as well. But we've all heard motivational speakers say that as well. Motivational speakers that you've heard say it say this, show me your checkbook and I will show you what you value in life. So the invitation for today is simply this, to focus on what really matters. What really makes the most lasting eternal difference in how we live our lives?
Think of it as an invitation. Actually, an invitation to a bit of fun, a bit of a competitive challenge, like the kind of competitive challenges that come up between teammates who say, I'm going to do more, so I'm going to beat you in getting the biggest reward. I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to get a really big reward in the next life. Don't we all? Wouldn't we all love that? By the way, we talk and care and serve, leading people to the goodness of God and and getting the other side, and God just gives us this really great reward. James actually tells us this life is that we live, that we're, we're living right now, it's just a mist. It's just a mist. It's here and gone. So live for eternal things. I just want to give you a couple ways you can maybe even do that in real practical ways coming up in the next month. You can, one, you can invite your unchurched friends and neighbors and their kids to the parents' day out, the child care event, and you can either go out to lunch with the parents and build your relationship, or you can volunteer and help make sure their kids have a great time. You can begin inviting your unchurched friends and neighbors to the Christmas Eve services. Christmas Eve is going to have this added touch this year. Every child who comes in elementary and younger is going to get a gift that's going to make that evening extra special, and they're going to have a lot of fun with it. In fact, some of you are going to steal that gift when you get home because you're going to want to do it uh, and see it at home. But you're going to have a lot of fun with that gift. You can respond by generously giving financially to what's happening at Quest so we can finish this year strong and go into the next year stronger. We actually are lower in our giving this year, even though we're significantly up in our attendance averages this year. Our giving is lower. And so we could really use the help to make sure we end up strong this year. The good news, the good news of, of Jesus was spread because people gave and supported him. And the good news of the gospel continues to spread because we give our time, our talents, and our money generously. And honestly, the measure that it spreads is often the measure of our giving. I also want to invite you to look for an opportunity in the next few weeks for one of your unchurched friends that you're praying with and look for an opportunity to be extra generous in a way that allows you to share how much God loves them, how much God loves you to share your faith with them in a practical way. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, I know for me that I, I, even as I say this, I recognize all the ways that I fall short in this in my life, of how it is so easy for me to become centered on things that don't really matter. Lord, I pray for all of us today. Would you just grant us your grace as we turn to you now? Would you return to us with so much blessing that we can't contain it? And would you allow us, especially during this busy season of the year when it's so easy to get in the press of spending and spending beyond what we can do and the pressure of family and commitments, and it just can, we can just be driven by so many things that don't matter. Lord, would you help us live our lives these next few weeks in a way that makes a tremendous difference eternally. And would you bring us the joy for all of us, Lord? Would you, would you help us live in that place of enjoyment now and in the future of all the things you've blessed us with? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.